Hello from all of us at From the Front Row. My name is Steve Sonye, and today I'm joined by Kimberly Graham, one of the Democratic Party candidates running for the office of United States Senator here in Iowa. Kimberly, we're going to run through a series of six questions related to the topics of health care, higher education, and public health. You'll have three to four minutes to respond to each question. Our first question is Iowa, like many Midwestern states, suffers from a serious brain drain problem where individuals graduate from colleges in Iowa and move away. What policies will you put in place to encourage the retention of graduates and attract others to the Midwest? So this, this potentially, I think that we can do different things on different levels. I mean, this, this probably is more of a state-focused issue and I would be a federal representative. However, that said, um, I think we can still do things like potentially the state can create an investment fund um, that would co-invest in promising enterprises with, you know, venture capitalist funds. Um, there are several states that already have this kind of funding. And there's also higher education spending. Now, ultimately, I think that we need to have debt-free public colleges and trade schools. So that would that would solve that problem of that. But we need to also just be investing more in our entire education system here. I mean, that's part part of why younger people who may be thinking of starting a family may leave is because it is clear. And again, this comes to a state funding issue, but I certainly would have a platform to talk about it, that Iowa has been not making sufficient investments in education. And then we had the whole chapter 20 um, gutting of public um, of uh, collective bargaining several years ago. Um, that needs to be reversed. Hopefully we can flip the um, Iowa legislature um, in this 2020 cycle so that we can reverse that so that teachers uh, and other educational professionals have their collective bargaining rights restored in full. And we also need to be able to, you know, pay, pay people better, pay teachers better, pay paraeducators better. Paraeducators make extremely, extremely low wages for what they do. And I think that needs to be addressed too. Another aspect of this, you know, what I've just heard anecdotally is that a lot of younger people and people that are in their 20s thinking of maybe starting a family in the next 10 years or five years, they leave, and this might sound weird, but they leave for recreational opportunities. They're like, yeah, I'm going to work hard, but you know, I want to do things on the weekends. I want to kayak. I want to go boating. I want to go hiking. And, you know, unfortunately we have not been paying attention to uh, enough to clean water, clean air, to having an, having our environment be a good one for recreational activities here. And, you know, in the last several years, I'm sure you've seen this too. You know, I've seen on the news, oh, this lake is closed because of the algae bloom. Don't don't go to this river. Don't fish here. It's too dangerous. It's toxic, right? And so we need to have an environment that's conducive to to a to a fun recreational outdoor life, you know, and that's that's some of the drive. I've actually had young people say to me, I want to move to Colorado because it's so much nicer there for outdoor activities, right? And we have a beautiful state with a lot of beautiful parks and state parks and but we we need to have an environment that's that's clean and healthy for people to to want to stay in the rise in coronavirus outbreaks in long-term care facilities emphasizes that there are significant issues with how we provide care and protect older americans what measures will you take to address immediate concerns with infection control and what else might you consider important to address in regards to long-term care facilities? So there's, there's a lot of um, issues here. 
a lot of this, as, as I sometimes say, could be a whole other show. So I won't, I'll try not to digress too much. But part of this goes back to having a universal single payer healthcare system that also includes um, nursing home care, long term care, because then there would be better investments, sufficient investments in that. We have got to be uh, increasing our budget that we spend as a, as a nation on long term care facilities by uh, billions of dollars, not just, you know, millions, billions of dollars. We also need to have far more oversight and actual boots on the ground inspecting these facilities on a regular basis. We don't. I happen to know someone who works in nursing home um, oversight in Iowa. And so I know firsthand from her over the last, I think she's been in that, in that department for maybe at least 15 years, maybe pushing 20, maybe even longer. And she's explained how they've decreased the budget. They have fewer people doing inspections. There's less oversight. Unfortunately, you just can't say to corporations, which a lot of these nursing homes, corporations, right? We're just going to trust you to do the right thing. You have to have oversight and you have to have accountability and you have to have people that just show up out of nowhere at any time of the day or night to inspect what you're doing and that they're able to do that. And when you don't have that oversight, then you can't make corrections and, and hold people accountable and, and potentially also hold the owners accountable if things are not being done properly. And I think you have to have meaningful prosecution when things are not done properly. And I don't think we very often see that. I was mentioning this the other night in a debate about meatpacking facilities and how these owners, I rarely ever hear of them being held accountable in any way, shape or form for the fact that they knew what was happening with COVID-19 for all that time and still let people work shoulder to shoulder without any PPE. They knew everything we all knew. We all potentially can see the news, right? And yet they weren't, they weren't protecting their workers and they should be held accountable for that. So one of, another thing that, that I actually heard about in regards to nursing home and COVID-19, that there is a particular nation, far lower rate of nursing home uh, infections and deaths from COVID-19. And the thing they're doing different is they are removing patients as soon as they are testing positive with COVID-19, rather than keeping them in the nursing home to potentially infect others, right? They're removing those patients to a hospital and having them recover in hospital instead of keeping them within the nursing home, potentially infecting others. That seems like a commonsensical thing. And when I heard it, I thought, well, why are, why, why are we doing that? So, I mean, that sounds like something that's kind of low-hanging fruit, that if we just change that policy so that we're removing the people that we know are testing positive, and then we just have to test. We have to test everybody and carefully quarantine those people who are positive because we, we've known now for at least a month or two that you can be utterly asymptomatic and still be passing this infection, this virus on to other people. So this whole presumption that unfortunately our governor has been feeding people every day in these absurd press conferences is just stay home if you don't feel good. Well, that doesn't work for COVID-19 because you can look and feel 100% great and walk around your community infecting everybody you come in touch, you know, contact, close contact with. So we've just got to ramp up testing. And, and literally everyone, every worker, every CNA, every nurse, every everybody who's going into a nursing home should be tested. I hope that we get rapid result tests up quickly so that you can like literally do a test and wait 15 minutes and see um, whether or not you're positive. Everybody should be tested and then people need to start getting tested regularly. I mean, ultimately, if we're going to be able to open our businesses and have things working, then we're going to have to be testing people all the time. I mean, regularly, because obviously you could have contracted it since the last time you were tested. 
So I just heard a, a public health uh, doctor, an infectious disease doctor, uh, several days ago saying that, you know, what, what she hopes will happen is very sooner than later, we're going to have like, literally, you can get like 10 packs of rapid tests that you can just test at home. And that way, if you're one of those workers that's out interacting with people all the time, you can know immediately or within a few days if you are positive so that you can quarantine yourself until you're no longer infectious. Public health funding represents only 2.5% of the roughly $3.5 trillion spent on health care. Years of budget cuts from 2008 to 2017 have led to the elimination of 55,000 positions in local public health departments. This has left our nation underfunded and unprepared to address public health emergencies like the one we're experiencing now. How will you help support our public health infrastructure to handle future emergencies and other public health issues? In, in, in researching, you know, to answer these questions, because I'm, I'm like a fact geek, I always tell people, here's how I like to talk about issues with statistics, stories, and money. Those are kind of the three pillars, I think, of discussing an issue thoroughly, right? We need personal stories, what's really happening to human beings, and statistics, and we need to talk about the financial part of it. Public health spending has declined uh, by 10% since 2010. Declined. And that should, it shouldn't ever be declining, in my opinion. And also, uh, polling that I was able to find indicates that more than 90% of respondents to polling indicate that it's an important priority, which obviously now that's probably 100% from whatever that poll was done. One of the things that we need to focus on is the national stockpile. We have seen right now the, the problem with not having a sufficient stockpile to, uh, you know, with PPE and with ventilators and things like that to address a pandemic because, you know, that's the thing about pandemics. You usually don't get a whole lot of warning. You might get a little, but not a whole lot. And so you're not going to have time to be trying to make up ground, you know, when something like this hits. You, you need to be prepared at all times. So we need to de definitely be working working really hard to replace the national stockpile with the things that are needed in a typically in a, a pandemic where it's an infectious disease issue and also both natural disasters as well. You know, we should be prepared for natural disasters and all of the public health issues that fall from those. We have to build all of that up and we have to, we have to, we have to invest in it. And it's, it's sort of like, I think some people unfortunately don't feel the urgency of it. I mean, we do now, of course, today, right now, but when it's not happening, we don't feel the urgency of it. And so I think that it's important that there's voices like mine and, you know, and infectious disease doctors who are jumping up and down in times when we're not in the middle of a pandemic saying it is never if we're gonna have another pandemic or if we're gonna have a natural disaster. It is always when. It is always just when. And so we've got to make sure that we're always prepared as one of the wealthiest, the arguably wealthiest nation on earth. We certainly can afford to be prepared. It's a matter of priorities. And so we just have to have people speaking up in, in the Senate to making sure that we're prepared and that, you know, in this case, like right now, that we're using things like the Defense Production Act to um, make sure that all the equipment that's needed is getting produced. It's still blowing my mind that we don't have sufficient PPE still for healthcare workers and, and any kind of essential worker, whether that's a person working in a grocery store or anybody who, who's gotta be out there still doing their job when we've got a super contagious disease out there. Rural families are increasingly threatened by closures of labor and delivery units in their communities. As a US Senator, what will you do to improve access to maternal care services? 
So critical access hospitals in rural areas to be eligible for federal funding, they've got certain criteria. So those criteria need to be waived or drastically loosened. The criteria, as I understand it, is they have to have less than 25 inpatient beds and be more than 35 miles away from a full service hospital. So if we relax or waive those requirements, then we could, we could change that and we could increase the eligibility for, for federal funding. Again, to sound like a broken record, under a universal single-payer healthcare system, there is provision for fully funding rural hospitals. So that is, there is no, are they going to be funded? Are they not going to be funded? They get funded. And there's no question of, can they not survive financially? They will be funded. They will be able to survive financially. And the reimbursement rates under a Medicare for All scenario too would be far, far higher than they are now. They have to be. They would have to be because otherwise the entire system would not be sustainable. So that's one thing that we have to work on. And that's something we can actually work on in the short term as well, even before we would have any kind of a universal single-payer healthcare system is the reimbursement rates for different areas of the country are different. And rural Iowa has some of the lowest reimbursement rates, which is really harming these rural hospitals because who tends to live in rural Iowa? It tends to be elders. There's a lot of a disproportionate number of elders people over 65 living in rural Iowa. So that is not the only people, but that's predominantly who's using these hospitals, right? And so those reimbursement rates are far too low and it's harming these hospitals. So we need a US Senator who's gonna go to Washington DC and talk every day to, to the powers that be about increasing the reimbursement rates for rural Iowa because they are not sufficient. And it is, I think right now we're looking at roughly 18% of our rural hospitals in Iowa are at risk of closing soon in the next year or two. If you just look at their financial trajectory, if we don't change something for them. As the pandemic continues, schools are shifting to online methods to provide education. Iowa is currently ranked 45th in state broadband access, and many other states have similar connectivity issues. What actions will you take to ensure students and others remain connected in this new digital era? We somehow managed to electrify the entire nation, right, back in the day. And I would argue that in 2020, high-speed internet is, it should be like electricity. It should be a utility, like water, like electricity, like having access to sewer, right? It's, just, it's, it's something you have to have. And not only do we need to focus on rural areas to make sure that uh, whatever investments are necessary to provide high-speed internet to every single household in the United States of America, it's just absurd that that isn't already the case, but... We also need to make sure that we pay attention to urban areas. I was just speaking to a gentleman last week who lives, I believe, in East Waterloo. And he, we were talking and his call dropped. And he called me back and said, you're not gonna believe this, but my calls drop in East Waterloo all the time. Well, East Waterloo is a predominantly black neighborhood. And he said, this doesn't happen to me in the you know, predominantly white areas of Waterloo, only here. And it's because we're not making those infrastructure type investments in communities that often have lower property values. And that has got to stop. We have no chance at providing equality of opportunity if the kids that live in the neighborhood with the lower property values don't have high-speed internet. That's just, you know, as we see with the schools all going online, that's just that's just a necessity. It's a requirement. So I would just continue to advocate for 
increased investment. I don't think this is something that we can leave to the states. I think we've got to we've got to make federal investment in it because um, the states aren't getting it done. So I think I think this is one of those issues of serious inequalities happen on many levels for someone in 2020 who cannot access high speed internet because it's literally where we do everything. It's where we research stuff. It's where we learn. It's where we connect. It's it's just it's where we find jobs. It's where we fill out job applications. It's it's everything. It's everything. So we need to invest in it. And for our final question, due to COVID-19, we've seen a tremendous growth in the use of telemedicine, where providers can consult with patients through audio-only or audio-video technology. How, as a senator, will you support the continued use of telemedicine in a cost-effective way? I think it's I think it's a fantastic, fantastic idea. One of my only caveats, and I, and I think it's a fantastic idea, period, and at the same time, I know there are some things that it's very difficult to get if you are not in the same room with a patient. And I know that there's times that just can't happen. You just can't be in the same room with them. There's, there's just no way that's too far away or, or for whatever reason that can't happen. So I think that's fantastic to have telemedicine available, especially for things like renewing a prescription, right? Where you have to check in with the doctor. Um, you don't want to be sending you know, somebody with, with health conditions four hours away, you know, to be able to have to see their doctor for something that if their doctor could just speak with them by video chat, they could renew that prescription without any problems would take 15 minutes on a, on a video chat. Um, so it certainly makes sense, but for it to be sustainable, hopefully this is one of those things that could, a good thing that could come out of this horrific pandemic is that insurance companies are, willingly being forced to, I'm not sure exactly how this has happened, but they are covering these telemedicine visits as if they were in-person visits and they didn't want to do that before, or they weren't doing that before. So hopefully that will come out of this on the other side of this, that will become a new normal that they will pay, but they also need to pay the same. So they need, we need payment parity. So a, a physician should get the same amount of money for sitting with someone on a Zoom call for 15 minutes as they would get if that person walked into their office for 15 minutes. Otherwise, there's gonna be a disincentive to be doing telemedicine. And I don't think we should disincentivize it that way. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's here to stay. I hope it's here to stay. I hope we also realize there's still value in certain situations where it's possible to be face-to-face -face with your medical care provider. And obviously there's some situations where you know, they're not, they're not going to be able to yet do like an ultrasound on you through your Zoom call, right? There's situations where you're going to have to go physically and get testing or get whatever it is, blood draws. But for so many things, it would be so much more efficient and, and so much easier, you know, especially for people that it's for, for whom it's very difficult to get out and about physically, it would just be phenomenal. And I hope that it, it continues to grow and that until we get universal single payer, that insurance companies will recognize the value of it and continue to do it. That was our interview with Kimberly Graham. Please be sure to tune in to future episodes of From the Front Row to hear more about issues in the field of public health. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu, and our episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Stay safe and stay healthy out there.